0: first thing I would say is that the challenge Africa is facing is not unprecedented. As a matter of fact, every other developing region in the world has faced it.
1: That's Louise Fox. She's a labor economist, formerly the chief economist at USAID, and before that a 30-year veteran of the World Bank. She's currently a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution.
0: I've been working on youth employment in sub-Saharan Africa for about 15 years.
1: I reached out to Louise to talk about exactly that, where are the job's going to come from. It's a question we're going to explore throughout the entirety of this season of The Flip. And it's a particularly important question in the African context, considering how young the population is, how many Africans will come of working age in the near term, and how the rate of population growth on the continent will exacerbate everything further.
0: I would say there is a challenge in that the labor force is gonna grow pretty fast, a little longer than some of these other countries. But overall, this is a challenge that can be overcome. We know how to do it, but it takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. Good jobs don't fall from the sky overnight.
1: So how are jobs created? While throughout this season, we're going to be looking at that question primarily through a technology and innovation lens, in this episode, our first of season four, we're going to start by exploring this jobs question through a more traditional development and economics lens. Because as we'll see, Though the future of work might be remote work or the creator economy or any other nascent categories, the future of work in Africa is also a traditional development story. Before we start, we'd like to thank our sponsor MFS Africa for their support of the entirety of season four of The Flip. Last season, we sat down with MFS Africa's CEO, Dario Kuju, for a deep dive into cross-border payments. And since then, the company has been busy with additional acquisitions to further their mission of making borders matter less and to make payments interoperable across different payment types. So I recently caught up with Dare to see what MFS Africa has been up to and what's in store for 2023.
2: When we spoke last time, we've just done the Baxi acquisition. i happy to report that we've made a lot of progress around the integration we wanted to do. Our first objective was to make sure Baxi continue to grow and continue to be relevant in the payment ecosystem in Nigeria, which we have done and continue to do. So our objective is still to get to about 500,000 agent POS active, and we make a a good progress this year toward that. Our second objective on that was to make sure we connect the backseat network to our network, to enable cross-border payment in and out of Nigeria, and we made a lot of progress in that direction as well. And then our third objective was to learn how we could take this outside of Nigeria because we still believe there is a lot on the offline payment. Most of Africa GDP is actually offline. So mm-hmm. if we want to be relevant in the broader context of Africa, we have to address that segment as well. Since then, we have also made another acquisition, GTP, in June, for different reasons, in a completely different geography. But there was kind of the acceleration of our conviction around interoperability still, that there is a, a need and a growing need to connect the mobile money ecosystem that we have across Africa to the global card rails. And that's what GTP is going to help us to do, to make sure that every single mobile wallet connected to the MFS Africa network can seamlessly move money in and out of cards in Africa and around the world.
1: You're listening to The Flip, the podcast exploring more contextually relevant stories from entrepreneurs around Africa. Welcome back to The Flip. I'm your host, Justin Norman. The initial premise of this season is that the future of work, and youth employment in particular, is an especially pertinent issue in the African context, due to the staggeringly high population growth and youth population in an area of comparably low earnings or income generation, and in an environment of low formal job creation as well. You've probably heard the statistics, but it bears repeating. Africa's population is 1.4 billion people. Its population will double by 2050. Its urban population will triple. In the next 80 years, the global population will grow by 3 billion people. 2.7 billion, or 87% of the global population growth, will come from Sub-Saharan Africa. Meanwhile, the median age on the continent is 19.7 years old. In the UK, it's 40, in the US it's 38, Germany is 46, Japan is 49. Even in China, it's 38, and in India, it's 28. As a result, African countries will be adding more people to the workforce in the next 10 years than the rest of the world combined. Where are young Africans going to find income generating opportunities? What's the plan to create more of them? And if we were the president or the minister of labor of an African country, where should we invest and what should we prioritize? For a podcast primarily focused on startups and technology, I would argue that technology should play a role. And considering the macro context we just explained, I would also argue that technology is increasingly going to be used to connect Africans to global opportunities, because not enough local jobs are going to be created. Indeed, we're going to make that argument in future episodes this season. But that argument fails to take into account the degree to which businesses and markets across Africa remain small-scale and informal, and the degree of local consumption as a result. So considering where most African markets are today, as our hypothetical country's minister of labor, we must also invest in traditional industries and follow a more traditional economic development playbook. Here's Louise Fox, who we heard from in the opener.
0: An economist would define employment as any economic activity where you're trying to make money. So a subsistence farmer is employed. They're just not productively employed. They're not earning very much.
1: While formal job creation is, of course, a long-term aim, Given the characteristics of the African market today, a significant percentage of the population will remain in less formal employment.
0: Yes, it's a good idea to focus on formal jobs, but we need to understand that not everybody's going to get one. Somewhere between 25 and 50 percent of the new entrants, depending on the country and the context, are going to get one. You have 50 percent of people who are employed working for themselves and their families in what we call household farms and firms. And it's just going to take maybe one or two generations, for that to change and not be the majority. So we need to focus on that.
1: Because as Louise says,
0: informal will be normal for a long time.
1: And the informal sector can and will produce growth for the countries in question.
0: When I first started working on the informal sector in Africa, somebody said, but this is not going to produce growth, Louise. And I said, what are you talking about? If 50% of the country makes 10% more income, I call that growth.
1: So this is where growth is going to come from. If more than half of the people are employed in the informal sector in what Luis calls household farms and firms, then the biggest boost to employment is going to come from productivity increases in household farms and firms, in agriculture and in the informal services sector. And as Luis argues, we can't overlook the role of agriculture in particular.
0: In terms of farming, there is in some countries in Africa an agro-pessimism. There is a sense that agriculture is the past, not the future. But I do know that we have, again, a lot of evidence that countries can get rich on agriculture.
1: Indeed, agriculture has actually been a stabilizing force for many countries of late, and particularly through the pandemic.
0: Some of my recent research, which is not even yet published, suggests that over the past 30 years in Africa, the agricultural sector has been less volatile in terms of economic growth than the non-agricultural sector. It can actually create macroeconomic stability, investing in agriculture. And the agriculture sector was the stabilizing sector for most African countries during COVID.
1: And when agriculture is more productive, which is in and of itself an impactful outcome, it also comes with second-order benefits.
0: Take a country like Tanzania, where agriculture has become more productive. Well, two things are happening, one, people are leaving agriculture. So the subsistence farmers who really maybe don't wanna farm, can't make a living in agriculture, have a small plot, are not in a good area, not in a very productive area. They're leaving it and they're able to leave it because there's more productivity so their children could then move into urban areas or towns or or even within rural area into uh, supporting upstream or downstream production.
1: When agriculture becomes more productive, It affords less productive farmers the ability to go do something else. And there's often an opportunity to do something else that's adjacent to farming.
0: So it sounds odd to invest in agriculture in order to have fewer jobs, but actually better agriculture creates better jobs downstream.
1: Now, if we're following a traditional development playbook, we can look to Asia for inspiration. And in particular, their work to create conditions for small farmers to thrive.
0: All of the Asian tigers started out with a land reform and land markets and clear land title. And I have to say the land issue in Africa looms large.
1: Addressing this issue is important for multiple reasons, especially in countries where a majority of the population is farm labor. Giving these farmers ownership obviously has positive implications from an income generation and equality perspective, which also leads to better crop yields. And addressing these land issues also has positive implications on willingness to invest in agriculture.
0: There's clear evidence that people don't invest if they don't have clear land tenure. And then the the people that invest in bringing the technology and bringing the goods from the farm to the market don't invest. So this land issue really looms large, I think. But, you know, countries that are working on it are doing better.
1: Then the Economic Development Playbook says once land issues are addressed and agricultural yields increase, countries should invest the proceeds from those surpluses towards manufacturing and export-oriented manufacturing in particular.
0: You think about Vietnam and Thailand, agriculture created the exports that they used to bring in the machinery and the capital investment they needed to become upper middle income countries. So I think you can easily underestimate the importance of agriculture.
1: But there's an open question from a timing perspective around what the manufacturing sector might look like in the African context today.
0: Manufacturing is something that has economies of scale. And many African countries can't get that economy of scale. It would take a lot of investment. So manufacturing is much more capital intensive. Second of all, manufacturing has turned a lot to automation to raise quality. And so if Africa is going to export manufacturing, it now faces a much higher quality standard.
1: So this is where questions are being asked around what African countries might then manufacture. The Brookings Institution, for example, has conducted research around so-called industries without smokestacks in which industrialization in Africa is reconsidered based on the realities on the ground.
0: There are a lot of reasons why manufacturing is a big hurdle for Africa. But I think what my colleagues at Brookings and developing this industry without smokestacks idea have really focused on is that there are sectors where They have the same characteristics of manufacturing in terms of bringing in new technology, allowing learning while doing, etc. But they don't run up against these obstacles. Now, one of the sectors they focus on is agro processing
1: When we come back, we're going to dive deeper into agro processing and what investment looks like across the agriculture value chain. But before we do, here's another word from our sponsor, MFS Africa. Earlier in the show, we heard from MFS Africa's Dario Kuju, on their acquisitions of Baxi and GTP, and the work involved to make payments more interoperable. So from mobile money interoperability to interoperability with offline agents to interoperability with cards, what's next?
2: So layer one, mobile money, by and large, is the most relevant form of payment method across the continent. Layer two for me will actually be the offline. And then the card being layer three. Especially when we're looking at intra-Africa payments, a lot of it is still... Related to trade, over the last twelve months, one of the notable, I say, introduction is around crypto, and the on and off ramp, which is growing, continue to grow even <laughs> right now, but a good portion of that, at least clients we spoken to, still related to trade, and it has more to do with someone wanting to import something and needs to make a payment to Turkey or need to make a payment to Hong Kong and using fiat to buy stable coin to make this payment. Over the last 12 months, it has been a really fast growing use case that we see across the network. But crypto is, may be its own stack. I mean, obviously it needs, you know, money is still physical. So you need the on-ramp, off-ramp in a, somehow, but crypto may just be a completely different network. And we are keeping our minds open for that possibility.
1: Last season, we published an episode called From Farm to Table, Season 3, Episode 7, in which we explored the agri-sector in more detail. In that episode, we spoke about the gaps across the agri-value chain. There's this apocryphal statistic that Nigeria is one of the largest producers of tomatoes in West Africa, and also one of the largest importers of tomato paste. While increasing productivity at the farm level is an important part of the development story, increased productivity, as we heard from Luis earlier in the show, ultimately leads to less jobs on the farm and more jobs downstream along the value chain. And that's where a big growth opportunity exists to add and capture value from a processing perspective and to create thousands of new jobs along the way.
3: At the moment, we're capturing probably about 4% of the value. I'd love to make it more of a superfood by capturing maybe 50% of the value in Africa.
1: That's Jerry Parks. He's the CEO of Injaro Investments.
3: Injaro Investments is a private capital investment firm that invests equity and debt in SMEs across Africa. Our track record to date has mainly been investing in agricultural SMEs.
1: If we agree with the premise that agriculture is an important sector to invest in from a development and job creation perspective, it's important to get Jerry's perspective as a PE investor primarily backing agribusinesses. In our conversation, Jerry and I talked about African superfoods, and he offered an alternative definition that African superfoods are that which create employment opportunities for the continent, but the biggest opportunity is capturing more value locally across the value chain.
3: Based on my definition, cocoa is probably a superfood already because it's consumed everywhere in the world and it's creating millions of jobs in, in West Africa. We could probably make it more of a superfood if we could capture more of the value of the end product, which is the chocolate in Africa. At the moment, we're capturing probably about 4% of the value. I'd love to make it more of a superfood by capturing maybe 50% of the value in Africa. This would involve investing in a lot more downstream processing so that we are only exporting higher value intermediate products or maybe even the final chocolate.
1: This, of course, involves investing in processing and production.
3: Why don't we have Cadbury's chocolate factories in Ghana, at least? Why couldn't they put 20% of their capacity in Ghana, 20% of their production capacity in Ivory Coast to actually add more value locally and create more jobs in this market?
1: And this question gets to the heart of the opportunity in agri-processing and is indicative of the commercial opportunity on the ground.
3: From a returns perspective, there are still opportunities that one can invest in because they're very clear value creation opportunities that um, agribusinesses can target. So, for instance, Africa still imports between 50 and 60 billion dollars worth of food every year. So that means established local markets that are willing to pay hard currency for these imported food products. So clearly, anyone who plugs into that demand by, you know, substituting those imports stands to make significant profits. There's also certain products that Africa produces almost exclusively. Things like shea butter, cocoa, fonio, and a few other things, where if we actually... Do a good job of value addition locally and do some active marketing in international markets, we can actually extract some pretty good value over there as well.
1: For Jerry, this is what drives his firm's focus on agribusiness, the commercial opportunity as well as the impact created by a more productive and robust agriculture sector across the continent.
3: As a son of the continent, I had to be part of the solution towards pushing for economic development. You know, recognizing that this is not something we could leave only to our governments or to donors, and recognizing that we are citizens or the private sector have a very core part to play in developing
1: our economy. And this informed the firm's sector focus.
3: One thing that is very obvious once you start thinking about economic development is that small businesses are actually the economic heartbeat of any nation. They drive the growth of any economy anywhere in the world. We wanted to do this in a way that would maximize benefits to the SMEs that we engaged with, but also the broader population within Africa. So which businesses could we invest in that would benefit the largest number of people? And it took only a curse Google search to realize that between 50 and 70 percent of Africa's populations earn part of their
1: livelihoods from the agriculture sector. So how does this macro context inform investment strategy here?
3: With agribusiness, I think probably one way to look at it is to look at it via the two extremes. On the one extreme, we have a big productivity gap in primary production on the continent, I'd say especially in Western Africa. And solving this problem will take time to increase the average productivity of West African farmers from, let's say, taking the case of maize, from, say, one and a half metric tons a hectare to an average of, say, seven or eight metric tons a hectare. It's going to take a systemic large-scale projects backed by governments, NGOs, and the private sector. And this is something that might take about 15 years. Now, it doesn't fit very neatly into the mandate of an investment fund or a classic investment fund that has a 10-year life. But it is very
1: important work that needs to be done. And there are other investment strategies that fit better into private equity mandates, for example.
3: On the other end, are the investments closer towards the tertiary side of the value chain? So packaged food, value addition where the focus isn't so much on optimizing primary production. An example you can give of this is tomato paste production business in West Africa that imports concentrates from China, adds water to it, and sells it to the local market. You can make money doing that all day long. But is that really helping to develop the local agricultural productivity? So for those who are interested in agribusiness and financial return, you could probably make that type of investment in a certain type of fund. Then there's a whole range of other opportunities in between where you have to constantly optimize between financial return and developmental impact.
1: And for Jerry, he has ideas about what a high return and high impact fund strategy could look like in the future.
3: We don't actually have one like that at the moment, but we'd love to have one that has a lifespan of 15 to 20 years where we can really build an integrated business across the value chain from primary production all the way to packaged food. So that that would be one type of product.
1: And here's another example
3: what an integrated food chain approach does is that it leverages the power of the markets. And I'm a big believer in markets being a driver for development. So to give a concrete example, Ghana, my country, is a big importer of broiler meat, poultry meats into the country. And this is a country where fundamentally we have all the elements to produce the raw materials that go into feeding a chicken and also building a downstream industry. And in this case, I'd say there's at least $300 million worth of demand per
1: annum in Ghana alone for broiler meat. So this is what the solution, a fully integrated job-creating solution, what the investment strategy and what the future of work in Africa ought to look like.
3: Now, how do we convert this into a market that creates 100,000 jobs across the value chain, starting from... The production of high-yielding seeds for maize, the production of high-yielding seeds for soy, then moving downstream to the primary production of, of maize at a reasonable cost and the production of soy at a reasonable cost, then a poultry feed business that produces the feed based on these raw materials such that the price of the broiler becomes competitive with imported broilers. And then going beyond that to even have abattoirs where you can kill and dress the birds Cold rooms where you can actually store these birds, and they actually have a whole value chain that feeds into supermarkets and straight all the way to the tables of our local consumers. And I feel like a coordinated effort between the private sector, donor partners, and governments to redirect the resources that in the past have not been coordinated as well could, in the space of about 10 years, actually restructure this market such that these inputs will dwindle down to a very small amount. This also solves the problem of using foreign exchange or hard end currency to import food, which could actually have been produced locally. And as a result... And I think in the process of doing this, we could be looking at creating hundreds of thousands of jobs and really transforming the economy in a way that can credibly change Ghana's foreign exchange depreciation trajectory over the long term. So from my perspective, this is how I see the potential for agriculture being used as a force for change. But in a way that is driven by consumption that we already have locally within the countries in which some of these integrated
1: businesses could be built. Now, in discussing this sort of integrated approach... Jerry alludes to the coordination problems that exist in getting various stakeholders, governments, donors, private sector to redirect resources in one harmonious direction. That's one topic of several that stood out when my B Mike, Shio, Foluio, and I sat down to reflect on this episode. When we think about the future of work, our mind immediately goes to like gig economy platforms, remote work, the digital Maybe economy. Yours,
4: your mind goes there.
1: Many people's minds go there, right? But before we do that, I think the conversation about where the income generating opportunities are going to come from like has to start locally and has to start from more of a traditional development perspective so that's why i wanted to start with this episode and the traditional development playbook says it starts with agriculture it moves into export oriented manufacturing i think it was the perfect place to start and then the question or the challenge i suppose is this idea about like actually executing on a vision and to what extent are we and even us as a sort of tech-focused podcast, you know, all of this tech-related stuff, when really a lot of our attention should be focused on this agriculture question.
4: The striking thing from that episode, that was the first thing I remember. I was like, should we just end the season here? I totally get the setup.
1: Yeah, cool. Cute.
4: Did you guys all want to talk about the tech stuff and da-da-da-da, but like, we're all fucked if we don't yeah. fix the fundamentals, right? And then a few questions came up. All right. so number one... The thing that came really clear especially from episode one is that it's a coordination problem right
1: it is possible right it's
4: possible i don't think like i don't think there's a a conceptual difficulty here Mm -hmm. i think the the answer as everybody alluded to is really obvious i think the question is about coordination and i probably would have liked to understand a little bit more great examples of coordination we referenced the asian tigers a little bit i really like the first step being around land titling but like just the points that we need to talk about and understanding case studies especially on the continent for people who are solving the coordination problem
1: in the case of traditional development stories and success stories like asian tigers it was government-led stuff and it's interesting because i've always sort of been of the belief that like bottom-up approaches in the context of like high decentralization and fragmentation like those approaches work really well it has been we're going to give land titles we're going to make everyone more productive we're going to create government-led industry and policy that supports it and to what extent is it just that is what it takes and to the extent that like governments can do that the answer is right there for sure
4: you know a lot of my uh, infra agri manufacturing guys are always laughing at me because they're just like "Yo, doc, if you're not kind of in that government space. You're just like nothing's gonna get done. Without that, that's the limiting factor that everything else just becomes a little bit futile. I think there's an interesting, I don't know that I believe it, but I think um we have to maintain some level of what do you call it? Like not ignorance, but you know what I mean, when you just pretend that it's not true. To get stuff done.
1: Willful ignorance. Yeah, so
4: willful ignorance to be able to get more and more done. But there's an interesting thing I was thinking about coordination. And coordination problems, actually problems that technology is very good at solving. If we agree that this is a coordination problem, and we also agree that we have willful ignorance about the value of technology and our kind of vibes in this space, what role may technology play in helping solve the coordination Mm -hmm. problem, if not the fundamental problem?
1: In that case, I was saying like a lot of this traditional development story stuff was a top down approach. So the bottom up approach also can change some hearts and minds.
4: With willful ignorance.
1: The problems are still there, but this is a model that's working in this context for these reasons. And then you pull the top down guys
4: down. And might be also, I might be part of the problem, right? Which is like thinking too hard outside of the existing things we know to be true and things we know to work. It's Mm -hmm. just, I think that we have seen too much of a failure in... The top-down approach that it's like, okay, what else can we do? Like, yeah. what is the alternatives, or or how might we influence the top-down approach enough that
1: it comes to the table? Yeah. But um, but I suppose then if we agree on on that path to success, the important thing for me is just that we are being like intellectually honest about how jobs are created, right? So 100%. so we're not yeah, saying yeah. yeah, everyone is just gonna be a a remote worker sort of thing because first of all the scope of the problem is huge Mm -hmm. that it needs to be solved from like an all-of-above perspective
4: that's why i say i really dig how we started this season yeah because it's just like okay guys let's just be real for one second we'll um be a little bit willfully ignorant going forward and maybe a bit optimistic, but if we're being real, the answer is actually easy. Well, conceptually, the answer is easy. The coordination to actually practically make it happen is very hard.
1: But you, just taking a step back for a second, you agree with the premise also of like, from a development perspective, obviously we need to create more local jobs, right? Local jobs need to, it's just like the nature of the markets and just like, I guess, how economies work, we yeah, need to focus on
4: the local. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't really understand the local jobs thing. Why do we hold it in contrast to remote jobs? In fact, why don't we get remote jobs right first, earning dollars, then consumption is going to increase. And even naturally, local jobs will actually, just by virtue of the fact that people have more money to spend on stuff and will demand higher quality of life, local jobs follow.
1: Do you actually think, though, that it's a like a remote, or like, let's call it like export-oriented weather, goods and services, like export-oriented first? I mean, as a matter of fact, that that was the traditional development story was export oriented manufacturing. Right. And now we're just saying export oriented services. And then that stimulates local consumption. Right. Because what we've been talking about all this time is a market size question, right? So all of these fintechs or whatever are constrained by the local market size. And so what I'm saying is in order to stimulate these economies or, or in order for these businesses to reach their full maximal potential the local consumption needs to grow and you're saying yes take advantage of that but as much as can be exported should be exported and that's how local economies are going to grow as well and that that is the traditional development playbook it was just that they were doing it from a manufacturing perspective instead of a bits perspective yeah
4: it's also like a question of trade-offs and strategy right what is more important
1: is the question actually more important though because what, what i'm trying to say is what is, is that, more important now is that sequencing important too
4: i think yes i think it's really important that we have a point of view i do think the sequencing is super important it's a strategy like but then this is when coordination problems start to come as well right mm-hmm. because we're both chasing the same money you understand
1: but so that's actually what's happening is i'm right. so then i'm saying we need to focus on all of the above and, here, and the money's getting here, yeah yeah.
4: And, you know, what is that allocation looking like in a way that is maximally
1: impactful? Yeah. Back to this idea of the traditional development playbook in Asia's context. So the sequencing was create opportunities for smallholder farmers to increase their yields and use that agricultural surplus to stimulate the development of an export-oriented manufacturing sector, right? That's really heavily supported by government policy. What you're saying now is perhaps, let's call it like the African development playbook could be the same, start with agriculture, stimulate development, especially in the context of just how many people are employed in the agriculture sector across the continent, right? And then if and when that surplus, the production can increase and create surpluses, that surplus can be used to then what? stimulate the development of a expert-oriented services sector, like everyone then is going to be a remote worker? Yeah, I don't know
4: that I'm saying anything, Doug. But yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: like, yeah. Okay, so so then what we're actually saying is all of this foofy remote work stuff that we're talking about is actually really important, right? It's like the remote work, the services, export-oriented services is going to take the place of export-oriented manufacturing in the context of
4: That is like a hypothesis yeah. that I would explore very strongly. Yeah. yeah.
1: And But to some extent, it is like, to what extent... Are the markets in question more capable of spinning up export-oriented services industries versus export-oriented manufacturing, Right, especially in the age of sort of precision manufacturing and automation and all of that? Exactly. So, yeah. So that's the question, I guess, is kind of what we're exploring this entire season is, is the second step of the development playbook export-oriented services? Yeah. And then that's going to be the next part of what we talk about is mm-hmm. the Andela style and all these other sort of things. Yeah, for sure. Interesting. Hmm. That was really interesting. What we just landed Yeah, 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 yeah. that was, that was
4: good. cool.
1: Yeah. That's it for this episode of The Flip. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be very grateful if you considered sharing with a friend or a colleague who you think may enjoy it as well. For more from The Flip, you can follow us on social media at The Flip Africa or subscribe to our newsletter at theflip.africa. Thanks as always for listening and we'll see you next time.